Okay, you can take the B or the F and switch for the N at Broadway Lafayette. Or you can go over the bridge to Decal and catch the Q to Atlantic Avenue, then switch to the IRT. Two, three, four, or five. But don't get on the G. See, that's very tempting, but you wind up on Smith and 9th Street, then you gotta get on the R. Couldn't you just take the D's straight to Coney Island? Well, yeah. Hi there, and welcome to Baseball by Design. I'm Paul Caputo, SportsLogos.net minor league baseball correspondent, broadcasting live, as always, from the Helmet Sunday Hall of Fame in my basement in Fort Collins, Colorado. I'm going to talk today about one of my my favorite brands. I just love this brand so much. It was one of my very favorites early on, one of the very first list of minor league baseball logos that I ever made of here are my favorites and here are my not favorites. The Brooklyn Cyclones came in at number one, and this was like 10 years ago. We're going to be talking to the team's broadcaster, Keith Rad later on, and, and I'm going to be talking with Andrew Stilwell of the website Coasters 101 to talk about roller coasters and Coney Island a little bit. But first, the great Todd Radom, the great Todd Radom, who is squeezing this interview in before going to talk to, to Buster Olney for, for ESPN and Baseball Tonight. So, Todd, thank you so much for, for making room for Baseball by Design uh, around your, your ESPN schedule. Paul, you are at the top of the heap here, my friend. I'm happy to be with you again. Great to see you. Great to talk about the Brooklyn Cyclones. Well, just a classic minor league baseball logo. And listeners of this podcast will know, uh, you know, astute listeners will will remember back in episode two, way back in 2021, in, in December of 2021, you and I spoke a little bit about the Cyclones. And I remember saying in that episode, okay, we're going to do a whole episode about this team at some point. And so here we are doing a whole episode about the about the Brooklyn Cyclones. And I just, I'm just going to let you take the reins here to, to tell the story about how you got involved and, and where the name uh, Cyclones came from. Yeah. So first of all, and I, I am always asked, as you can imagine, what's your favorite logo you've ever done? Which is like asking, you know, who's your favorite child? And in the case of logos in my long career, that would be, you know, of your thousands of favorite children, right? I, I try so <laughs> hard not to ask that question on this podcast. The, like the what's your favorite, the hyperbole, like I, you know, so, so and, anyway. And I to your you credit, you don't ask that. <laughs> However, I always will throw out there the fact that the cyclones reside in, in the Valhalla at the very top of the heap somewhere for several reasons, which I'll articulate here. Um, first of all, I am a New York guy, born in Manhattan, raised around New York, went to college in Manhattan, you know, uh, and I'm a guy who, as you know, appreciates history and sports history. So you combine all these things with the fact that the Brooklyn Cyclones uh, when they came into existence in 2001, became the first professional sports team to reside in Brooklyn since the Dodgers left following the 1957 season. So the significance of this personally and, you know, in terms of the of the history, uh, what a great thing to be able to sink my teeth into. Additionally, Coney Island is this place for those who have never been there, which has a really distinctive sense of place. There are very few ballparks that look like, uh, you know, the, the home of the Cyclones. Um, and there are very few places in America that are, I hate to throw the word iconic around, but it's true. It is this quintessential American playground that um, has been inviting people to enjoy the place for 
a century and a half. One of the other things I would note, Paul, is the fact that, um, you know, not everything ages well. This mm -hmm. particular mark, this package, uh, 21 years after it made its debut, I still like. And mm -hmm. I think it's aged pretty well. But, um, you know, a couple of things spring to mind. Um, and I will get to the crux of the Cyclones question, which would be, this was assigned to me. The name, <laughs> the name was given to me. Work with the Cyclones. The Cyclone <laughs> is this 1926, I believe, wooden roller coaster that looms large over Coney Island. Um, and you and I have talked about it. That thing is rough this time <laughs> of year when it's, you know, if it's not shut down already, it is uh, very, very, um, yeah. So anyway, thinking about working on this thing in the context of the Subway Series in 2000, the Mets mm. and the Yankees, more history, more New York baseball history, New York history. Um, I was working on this as the Mets and the Yankees were in the World Series. And Paul, I can distinctly remember being in the teeth of this project um, and going to game four of the World Series at Shea Stadium going to a pregame Mets reception and just kind of like, all right, I got to take the night off because, you know, I'm hot on this project and here I am. And that day I found out uh, that, that we were in good shape with it. So it's got a lot of special memories to say the least. And it continues to move forward all these years later. Well, and for you to include it at the top of, of, your list, or at least among the the tops of, of your list is, is saying something because you've done, Super Bowl logos, you've done Major League Baseball logos, you've worked with the big three, you created team logos in the big three basketball league. Uh, you've done a lot of high end, you know, highly prominent design in the sports world. And so for this minor league baseball logo to to stand out among among your favorites is certainly saying something. I should also point out, you know, because we just jumped right into the conversation because you know me, I get so excited about it. I was remiss to not point out a couple more of your bona fides. You're uh, the author of Winning Ugly, which is an amazing collection and articles about uh, my, uh, Major League Baseball logos. Just such a fun read if you're a sports fan, if you're for a fan of, of branding in sports. And then, of course, with our mutual friend Chris Creamer, Fabric of the Game, which is about hockey uniforms. And so you're the author or co-author of those two books. I also have a signed Todd Radom baseball card here. <laughs> Well, you, this is a, this is a rare thing here, Paul. There are not too many people who have that. So you were, uh, you knew you were special, but uh, that catapults, catapults this specialness into a different place. And of course you you appear regularly on Buster Olney's baseball tonight podcast. And so, so I just launched into this, assuming everyone knew who you were, but I figured I would go through those, those bona fides there. You mentioned you're a New York guy, and so obviously Brooklyn, you know, is near and dear to your heart. Uh, that the sort of heritage of that place. I hope it's. Uh, I hope I'm allowed to mention right now that you have recently become a Philadelphia guy. You're living in the the my my native Philadelphia, so I assume now you are a diehard Phillies and Eagles fan, and and living and dying and talking about water ice and uh, eating cheesesteaks and uh, you know going down the shore on your weekends. Well, I'm I'm not quite there yet. I'm in, in limbo between New York and Philly, but I will be. And that is a big, big deal for me. It will represent the furthest I have ever lived from Times Square, even though it's really not that far. It's not like moving, <laughs> you know, from your native area to where you currently live. That's a big move. 
This is right. not that big a move, but it is a big move for me. But anyway, <laughs> I will take a rooting interest uh, or, you know, I, I have a, I have great relationships with the Phillies. Uh, talk about winning ugly. I did a book signing at Citizens Bank Park nice. in 2018 uh, at a Phillies Red Sox game. Um, so that was fun. So I've got friends fun. there. I've got, uh, you know, so my my rooting interests will be, um, I don't know, I you know, adopted teams perhaps um <laughs> if not all in rooting interest water ice hoagies the whole nine years <laughs> i love it all right let's get back to brooklyn here you mentioned the the place of coney island right like and there's a mythological quality to coney island i lived you know like i said i just i grew up in the philadelphia area two hour drive from from new york city and it took me until just a couple of years ago to get to Coney Island for the first time. And we went there. I went there with my daughter and my nephew to go to uh, a Cyclones game. And we, you know, we, I, I thought it was going to take forever to get there. We got there, you know, a little earlier than I thought we would. And, and so we had a chance. We bought a Frisbee and threw a Frisbee around on the beach for a little while. We rode the roller coasters. We've already mentioned the Cyclone is just it's it's you pay ten dollars to get a low grade concussion. I've said that before to ride the Cyclone. We did the Nathan's hot dogs, but you know people see it on the Fourth of July on ESPN. The hot dog eating contest is televised there, so and it's you know famously uh, included in a Seinfeld episode when when they're on the the subway trying to get out there. And so you you used the word iconic, and I think that's fair to use for it, right? Like it's got a, in my mind almost like a mythological quality. And so for it to be the backdrop over center field as you're watching a baseball game in Brooklyn, and for that roller coaster to be featured as the the sort of main visual element in their branding really says something about about that place and what you know sort of the how people perceive Coney Island and what Brooklyn is sort of in the cultural ether there. So how did you how did you capture that in this roller coaster based logo that you created? So a couple of things. Uh, Coney Island, for those who are not aware of it, uh, really is one of these places that, you know, for all of its recent success and all of the history, it was a place that uh, fell on hard times, uh, starting in the, let's say, 1950s. It was one of these places that, um, you know, let's put it this way. Uh, I'm a child of the 70s, New Yorker. That was not someplace that I was going when I was a kid. All right. right? Uh, and we can look at Coney Island through the prism of popular culture because that's kind of what it's all about. And the movie The Warriors, which is not a not a positive branding situation <laughs> for Coney Island. But Coney Island, um, starting, I believe, with the there's a guy named Ben Osborne who you you should talk to at some point too, a friend of mine who wrote a book about the first season of the Brooklyn Cyclones. I don't know oh, if cool. you know Ben. Yeah, mm -hmm. very, very good guy. Used to be editor in chief of Slam magazine, does a, several different things these days. But anyway, I digress. But uh, the uh, construction of that ballpark and the arrival of the Cyclones represented a kind of seminal moment in the comeback of Coney Island and mm. a lot of good things followed Coney Island uh, to your point is a place that if you are traveling by subway from Manhattan it is a long ride but it's a fascinating <laughs> ride and you see neighborhoods change and you see you know all this stuff but there is such a great thing and you could probably speak to this uh when you emerge at the end of the line at Stillwell Avenue and uh you are 
you 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 smell suntan lotion and the ocean and you get out there and you are faced with this you know typical kind of blue sky near the ocean after having gotten on the train in many cases in times square yeah. quite a different thing and uh you 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 know go through all of this stuff and there is the ballpark and it's spectacular it has a very distinct sense of place itself in a place that has this really great distinct sense of place mm -hmm. so to get back to the logo which is basically what we're talking about some of my inspirations um thinking about the history and thinking about the kind of carnival atmosphere that coney island is so well known for um i looked at old posters and luggage labels and postcards look at that cyclones type and uh the lettering and think of those greetings from postcards with the flowing lettering Absolutely. that were such a big deal uh and the colors uh have some uh, meaning as well uh the blue pantone 288 blue mets blue <laughs> all right there is there is a hint of columbia blue if i'm recalling this correctly the wilpon family which you know uh mets cyclones columbia grads so if i'm recalling this correctly there was a a request for columbia blue which really worked out beautifully uh and then you've got you know these vibrant you know red and uh gold slash yellow mm -hmm. all very harmonious colors that come together in this kind of you know um loving homage certainly to what coney island is all about but it's very festive and it harkens back to all of that vernacular stuff that i discussed earlier the retro type, you know, that you see on postcards is kind of perfect because it's, you know, it's it sort of flows like a roller coaster would, but it absolutely you pull it out of that roller coaster and put it on a postcard, and each letter has a picture of a different thing from Coney Island that, yeah. in there, right? Like, it, yeah, that would be perfect for for a postcard, and then you know, but the overall effect of it is like you say, it's just these, it's the blue and orange complements that you see with the with the Mets. One of the other things that I have not mentioned yet, I should mention that this you know, that the Brooklyn Cyclones are the high A affiliate for the New York Mets. I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that part of the part of the the uh, the task with branding the Cyclones was it's New York. It's a major league city. There was no minor league baseball within the city limits of mm -hmm. New York for, you know, a, a multitude of reasons, which we won't get into here. Sure. So part of the task was really to create a major league brand for a low minor league team in the one of the biggest cities in America. Sure. Because when you created this brand, they were in the short season single A New York Penn League. And so it was even lower than their their current high A status. And, you know, when, when we talked way back in 2015, for the first time, I think for the first time you and I spoke was in 2015, when I was writing this article for sportslogos.net was a, a, about, you know, it was for the story behind the nickname series that I write for that website. And uh, one of the things we talked about was creating a brand that was outside this trend towards wacky, kid-friendly, cartoonish brands, creating, like you say, a major league brand for a minor league team. And it's noteworthy that it has stood the test of time, right? Like, and, and I'll talk about this with Keith next, but, you know, they do a lot of fun stuff. You know, their Seinfeld nights are hilarious and they're, you know, they have a lot of minor league fun, but the brand is, is, is quite serious, even for a brand that's based on a roller coaster. It's not wacky in the least. It's a, you know, it's a cleaner, more sophisticated look, which is 
the the Wichita Wind Surge's Turbo Tubs brand, notwithstanding, is consistent with your sort of visual vernacular, right? To borrow your term, there, uh, a more serious approach to sports branding than you know some of the other things that we're seeing in minor league baseball right now. So, how do you explain this brand standing the test of time in the face of the fact that minor league baseball trends have gone very much the other direction since then? You know, part of it's luck. Uh, just maybe you've got a, uh, management there and management's come and go over the course of 20 some odd years, but you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Um, the brand remains popular. There's also another component, which you and I haven't discussed yet, which is the inclusion of the Brooklyn Dodgers B in there. So, you know, it's got, it's got a lot going for it, I think in that sense. And, um, you know, listen, if you and I can recall, and I'm sure some of your listeners recall, and I'm just, you know, when the Staten Island Yankees at the time uh, introduced pizza rats, mm-hmm. right? There was a you and cry. New York is just a little bit different. It's not, yeah. it is, it is a big city. It is not a small market. I'm, I'm understating the significance of all of that. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I think that the staying power, um, you know, it's, it's solidly constructed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's versatile. Uh, it actually activates pretty well digitally, which was not a concern back when I was mm-hmm. working on this at the turn of the millennium. And, um, you know, I think it was set up to succeed because it it uh, didn't lean into trends heavily. Mm-hmm. Trends come and go far yeah. more so now than at any point in our lifetimes. You know, our attention spans, I say this in every podcast or any interview I do, our attention spans are so diminished. Trends kind of can come and go in milliseconds. And um, the the Cyclones look is decidedly untrendy in Mm -hmm. a New York way. Right. One of the things that you see in sports branding in baseball logos in particular is the interlocking letters. And so you just mentioned the Brooklyn B that appears in this and it interlocks with the C. So paying homage to the old Dodgers B cap, uh, but, you know, the team that obviously left Brooklyn to move to Los Angeles. That's a a really important detail. You know, it's not just about the fact that this is a Mets affiliate and they're playing in New York City, but, you know, that paying tribute visually to the the team that used to the major league team that used to play in Brooklyn is an important thing to do. I think it's generational. Uh, Let's think about the fact that when the Cyclones emerged, you know, uh, new in 2001, there were plenty of baseball fans in the New York area who had been Brooklyn Dodgers fans. And uh, their team was ripped away and uh, transported to the West Coast. Uh, Time, of course, takes its toll. Mm -hmm. And uh, newer generations really have no no touchstone when it Mm -hmm. comes to the to the Brooklyn Dodgers. Mm -hmm. It's kind of this mythical thing that Mm -hmm. is is, uh, you know, back there. It might might as well be, uh, you know, it's sort of ancient history. But it is a cool thing. And they do celebrate that along with the Giants in the ballpark, the New York Giants. Um, and I think it's like a kind of a nice add on. Let's put it that way. While it might've been more critical, uh, as a, as a, uh, a selling point back in 2001, not so much now. And listen, when city field, the home of the Mets opened up in 2009, uh, it looks like Ebbets field, the home of the Dodgers. And there was a lot of criticism at that time because mm-hmm. the, the feeling was that the Wilpon family, which had this, you know, Fred Wilpon, um, Brooklyn native, famously went to high school with Sandy Koufax, 
was so into the history of the Brooklyn Dodgers that the look of the ballpark excluded the look of the Mets to a great extent. Well, they corrected mm -hmm. that pretty quickly, mm -hmm. and you know it's not a controversy anymore. Sure. It's important to me, too. I love this fact. The, the Brooklyn Cyclone itself, the roller coaster, opened 30 years before the Dodgers left town. So if you think about how long that, how long that that cyclone roller coaster has been inflicting low grade concussions on <laughs> visitors to Coney Island, it's an amazing history of, of that place. So. No question. Fillings being, you know, jarred in my teeth. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about getting on there, maybe after a couple of beers with some friends at a cyclones game uh, 15 years ago, something like that. And uh, one particular friend of mine who has always been kind of the devil on my shoulder since college days like oh come on let's let's go i'll i got it for all of us get on this thing and all of a sudden and it was uh very late august early september yeah. and uh boy that thing is jarring far more so this time of year than uh when it's freshly oiled to open up the season after memorial day I'm wondering, you know, may, and maybe they could just make you a manager of of Luna Park there where the cyclone exists. You know, maybe you could suggest, hey, how about like sometime in July we oil it up again? You know, like <laughs> let's maybe uh... they don't have the budget, Paul. Maybe they're <laughs> maybe their oiler is, you know, has a summer vacation. I have no idea. That could be that would be a great thing if someone who worked at at, at Coney Island had a summer vacation and they just said, yeah. oh, sorry, that's all the oil you get. So, you know, <laughs> it, it's possible. It's 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 probably not the case, but uh, maybe I do think that you talk about mystique, another yeah. word that gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. The cyclone itself has a mystique. And I think part of that mystique is this is a rough ride and yeah. it is not for the faint of heart. You, you sent me a photo of the sign like right by the exit that says, thank you for riding the cyclone. Please come again. And it looks like this sort of metallic plate with hand painted letters. Yeah. And, you know, that sign that sign has the feeling of of a, uh, you know, something that's been around since 1926 as well. Right. Like that's I mean, it's just like the whole sort of visual experience is is just steeped in history, it feels like. Yeah, I think that, that, again, you talk about Coney Island, and there is a new Coney Island that mm -hmm. we can talk about because sure. a lot of these rides uh, are, are come after the Brooklyn Cyclones arrived. There has been this economic renaissance out there. Uh, it is, again, safer. It's a place that people want to go to uh, in a way that they didn't 30 years ago. But there is this underlying authenticity. And you talk about a brand, the Coney Island brand, mm -hmm. which people the world over know, even if they've never been there. Mm -hmm. um, and that sign speaks to that. So I hope that that kind of detail does not get replaced anytime soon, because the real Coney Island, and that includes Nathan's, it uh, it it resides somewhere under this. I don't know if it's a glitzy new exterior, but uh, something that's a little bit more polished and new. Todd, this has been, as always, so much fun. I have such a good time talking to you. And I, we've already talked about the wind surge and, of course, the Turbo Tubs brands that that you did in Wichita. And you know, now we've gotten to talk about one of my favorites, the Brooklyn Cyclones. You told me in our pre-interview about a team that I did not know about. And so I, this is going to be another conversation, I think, for us. The Queens Kings, uh, who you told me played for one year in 2000, who I looked up after we talked about it. They have a remarkable logo that you created for them. And so this is this is brand new, as it were, brand new information for me ab about this, this incredible team. So I think there's going to have to be another episode after we talk about ligatures uh, <laughs> in episode 58. 
to talk about the Queen's Kings because this brand is remarkable and not one that I knew anything about. And it's got this amazing serifed queue in there with a playing card king in it. And so, yeah, so this is this is a fun brand that we're going to have to delve further into sometime when, uh, you know, when you don't have to jump off and go talk to Buster Olney. A one year wonder. And we can make uh, we can have a conversation about a one year wonder, you and I. That can stretch for a half an hour. I'm certain of it, Paul. <laughs> the Queen's Kings. I love this. I'm so glad you told me about this. And uh, yeah, can't can't wait for, for that conversation. So Todd, thank you again. Thank you for letting me keep you a little bit longer than I said I was going to. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Always enjoy being with you, my friend. Uh, looking forward to the next one, Paul. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, everyone. Welcome back. I'm very happy to be joined right now by Keith Rad, who is the broadcaster for the Cyclones, also an account executive, uh, has been with the team a relatively short time, and and so I, you know, have the opportunity now to, to to talk to Keith about you know what the team means to the to the local community, what the nickname means, and most importantly, Keith, have you actually ridden the Cyclone roller coaster? Yes, I don't think it was part of the job interview, but you have to have ridden the Cyclone roller coaster at least once before you can start working uh, working in Brooklyn. Yes, the famous. The famous cyclone. It is not the smoothest <laughs> of roller coasters. You kind of feel the, uh, the the age of the thing when you ride it. Yeah, absolutely. I think if people knew that going in, it might be a better experience. But uh, yeah, it's not as smooth as the new ones that you have. We have a you know Six Flags on the East Coast. They've got brand new roller coasters every couple of years. The cyclone's been a staple for. I think almost a century. So you're from the New York area. You're from Long Island, I understand. And, you know, so this, this is, this team has been a part of your, your, your culture growing up. And, you know, that it's, it's interesting to me because I grew up in the Philadelphia area, just a couple hours from Brooklyn. The one time I went to a game uh, in Brooklyn, we actually drove up from the Jersey shore. We were staying down in uh, Ocean City, New Jersey, and we drove up. And I think for for much of America, for people who have not been to New York, who have not actually gotten out to Coney Island, that that it almost feels like a movie set, right? To to be in Coney Island, you know, it feels like almost fictional in a way. Uh, and so there's a sort of lore, there's a mythology to Coney Island, you know, the roller coasters, and now you have this this baseball team that brought baseball back to New York after the the Dodgers left, obviously. So what is the significance to you as someone who grew up in the area of of having a team right there in this almost sort of mythological setting of of Coney Island? Yeah, so it, it's it's New York City's playground that we, that we call it. I mean, just the colors of Coney Island are the thing that stick out the most when folks are either taking the subway down from New York City or they're, they're driving into town. Uh, it strikes you. And we, uh, we have the parachute jump, which is the highest peak basically in, uh, in Coney Island, which is right in right field over our ballpark, which is affectionately known as the Eiffel Tower of Brooklyn. So we call it that, um, <laughs> but it is this, that's that image. I mean, we even have the, the Coney Island Brewery and that's one of their lasting images of, of Coney Island. But you're right, it is, it is kind of like a movie set. Uh, growing up on Long Island, one of my favorite books was uh, Great Gatsby. And whatever version that they gave us in school, on the front cover, there's a, uh, a woman with eyes. You can see kind of a, a shadow of a face, but then everything underneath it is the bright lights of Coney Island. So for me as a kid growing up, loving that book, that was always a great, like you said, mythological view of what the place is all about. And then once you get in there, I started working there in 2018. Uh, you start to see the place come alive. And it has changed year after year, decade after decade with 
uh, what it is all about over there, but it continues to be a uh, an experience for everybody who comes down. Uh, one of my favorite things, I take the subway in every day. So uh, the, the corner of Surf and Stillwell, I pass Nathan's on the way to work during the sunshine and then at, at night, uh, at nighttime. And uh, just seeing everybody sit at Nathan's, get a hot dog and French fries. Maybe there people come down from well, once a summer to grab a, a dog and some fries and enjoy Coney Island and then uh, maybe catch a Cyclones game. But I get to see those faces. I can tell how that they seem new. They seem like they're here uh, for the first time. And and when you get to see that, their eyes and, and, and how they're soaking it all in, you, you do realize that this is a pretty cool place, pretty unique place to work. Well, I can tell you, I mean, I, I mentioned I grew up in the Philadelphia area. I'm a Phillies fan. So, you know, the, the motivation to, to motivate me to go see an affiliate for the New York Mets, you know, take, takes a little bit of doing, right? We're, we're, we're natural sure. rivals there. <laughs> But we did do that. We drove up from the Jersey Shore. It was a couple hours. I didn't know what traffic was going to be like. I mean, driving in New York City, the, the flip side of New York being sort of mythological is that in a lot of ways, it's very imposing, right? Like if you if you don't spend a lot of time there. And so, you know, I I anticipated a, you know, a lot of traffic and it was going to take us forever to get there and it was going to cost a million dollars to park. And and of course, none of that was true, right? Like we just sort of breezed right up there and, you know, we, we parked very easily by the ballpark and we ended up with, you know, hours before the game actually was scheduled to start and so i was there with my nephew and my daughter and uh so you know we we walked coney island we walked walked the sort of full length of, of coney island bought a frisbee went down there on the water and sort of threw a frisbee around we did exactly like you said we got some nathan's hot dogs and uh you know we we made a, a day of it and then one of our favorite things during the game it was a, a rain shortened affair it ended after five so it was an official game i counted on my list because it was an, an official game but, you know, the 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 experience of just experiencing Coney Island and then being able to see the rides over the the outfield wall really drove home that aspect of the experience. As I presume a Mets fan, I presume you're a Mets fan. Can I can I make that assumption? Well, growing up, I, 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 don't, I can't lie. I was a Yankees fan. But oh. when you work in baseball and you work in baseball very closely with human beings that are starting out at the very young levels of the minor leagues and you meet all the coaches and the coordinators and the people and you start to watch those guys graduate to the big leagues uh i have a i call the mets my family so okay. i am uh <laughs> i don't know if that's the most political answer but the mets i i am more closely entwined with the mets than i ever have been with the yankees so okay yes well the, the question that i was going to ask was sort of with all that setup of of sort of painting that scene there Minor league baseball, the relationship with the team to its parent club isn't always necessarily essential to the experience of, of that ballpark. I'm sure you encounter people all the time for whom having baseball in that setting is just critically important. How important is that to you in, in your job in sort of representing the, the team out there? Yeah, first of all, I'm, a, I'm an absolute lover of history. And when you're working in broadcasting, you have to constantly be a storyteller. So my first task when you get a, a job like this is to learn about the people that are coming to your stadium, learn about the borough. And uh, what I always tell people is that when, when, when the Dodgers left, you know, men were, were weeping in the streets. So that uh, the impact of bringing baseball back to those same people and their kids and grandkids, uh, Dodgers left after 57, we opened our doors in 2001. And uh, that first year, uh, I think season tickets sold out in about 12 minutes or something like that. Right. But that constant uh, that constant uh, representation of what what once was for baseball in Brooklyn and the meaning that people have with this sport, which I think is a little bit of a different meaning that 
anyone has ever had with any other sports. Football's cool. Hockey's awesome. But nobody is as intertwined with something like Americans are with baseball and families are with baseball, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, that kind of thing. So uh, living in, breathing in Coney Island, you're also living the history of, of that. So every single day you're walking into this historic place that has meant so much for the city for so many different years. Like I said, the, the identity of Coney Island has changed over and over and over again. And so when you mix the history of Coney Island and the history of Brooklyn baseball, uh, it's a special place. And, you know, we have our own identity with the, the Cyclone and the a little bit different than the Mets. Uh, but I will say, since uh, Steve Cohen has purchased uh, our team, he purchased the Mets, there is a, a lot more of a, a marriage there. Uh, we're, we're involving more orange and blue in our color schemes and alternate jerseys and things like that. Um, but we'll never lose the identity fully of being the Brooklyn Cyclones and being our own, our own organization. Well, and I think, you know, even, even without, you know, the, the ownership question, you know, who owns the team, I think you're seeing a lot of that in minor league baseball now with these 10 year player development contracts that the, you know, all the minor league teams are, are, are signing. Is it, has the relationship to the parent club changed now that you've advanced levels, you, you know, in the reshuffling of minor league baseball, you went from a short season single A team to a high A team. Just the fact that you're one, you know, you're a, well, a couple levels closer counting a level that doesn't exist anymore. Does that make the, the, the relationship with the parent club even more important? Absolutely. Cause now you have uh, fewer and fewer levels for these guys to, to experience, but also the whole restructuring was, to better the experience of each player, um, better facilities, um, better work conditions and things like that. Uh, so all of that just, I think, sharpens the focus for all these teams instead of having seven, some, some teams have eight levels, uh, yeah. multiple teams at each level. Yeah. And now you can really focus on the four key levels and then a couple of uh, complex and Dominican uh, academies. Um, yeah, everybody, everybody loves it. Everybody's working hand in hand and trying to make the experience better. Um, I, I, I know it was a frustrating time for a lot of teams, a lot of organizations, um, but it was, it was something that was always coming. And um, we, we certainly love working with the Mets, love, the Mets love working with us because we're their, their little brother in Brooklyn. Uh, but high A, I mean, the Mets own um, St. Lucie, which is low A, us at, at high A and Triple A Syracuse, and we all we all work uh, very very closely together to try to to achieve that that same goal and, and and have the same experience everywhere you go. Listen, I know that you're the Mets are family here, right? And I and and I, and I don't mean to cast aspersions here, but the Syracuse Mets and the St. Lucie Mets those are pretty boring, right? Can we get can we get some unique <laughs> nicknames for those teams? I don't. That's that's above my pay grade, but uh, St. Lucie Mets I know is. Uh, definitely a tie to just being local in the area with with um the floridians and spring training and tying that home to to new york syracuse i know they were with uh washington for for many years mets were with the las vegas aviators uh forever and then came over to syracuse so <laughs> yeah i uh, uh i wonder if they'll change it <laughs> i don't know i would love to see them do the syracuse mets likely will not because they just recently changed but anyway that's a you know, I'm putting you on the spot there. I understand that. You all do some fun, you know, you have a very serious professional looking brand, a serious baseball brand created by Todd Radom that, you know, is not sort of party to this, you know, minor league baseball wackiness that you see out there, you know, on, on the landscape. 
but you do some really fun stuff because you're minor league baseball and there's fun stuff to be doing. One of my favorite things that that you all do are, are, are the the Seinfeld nights because I mean Seinfeld is as intertwined with New York as as anything, uh, and then these sort of promotional nights that you do where you know I mean just the I think you did a soup Nazi night. There was like an Elaine dance off competition. There's been some just great ties to the the TV show Seinfeld. Has that relationship been something that's been fun to cultivate for you? Is that something you guys have fun coming up with year after year or the Seinfeld nights? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's my, it's my favorite show of all time. Uh, and Billy Harner, who I think you've spoken to in, in the past, he's, he was the, the founder, the father of that, if you will, back in 2014. Yeah. Uh, and every single year we're able to get more and more creative with the night. We've had different jerseys. We've been the, the Brooklyn sign clones. Um, we've been the Brooklyn marble rise uh, during some of these <laughs> events. Uh, but yeah, they're absolutely awesome. And I know that um, New York Nico, who's a big uh, Instagram account in, in New York, he put out the Elaine dancing competition that just blew up on a, a viral video on Instagram this past year. But we've been doing that every single year. Uh, after every Seinfeld night game, we have an Elaine dancing competition. And we would stop doing it kind of thing. But there's just crazy Seinfeld fans that come out every year. So we keep putting it on, of course. We keep doing uh, it. Especially that, that Elaine dancing competition. I mean, you see uh, men and women, uh, but mostly women dressing in the, that kind of ugly Elaine dress with the yeah. black and the orange. I don't know, you know, something your mother would wear in the 90s and then uh, an Orioles cap just to, just to, for the kicker. Um, yeah, but it's, right. it's awesome. But that is, that is you know, we loved Seinfeld in New York and it's, it's no secret that it, it did well because it's a New York show, like you said. It's a worldwide show at the same time and it's, a, it's just a perfect marriage of New York baseball and, and laughter, which I love Seinfeld for the laughter and, and minor league baseball, you have to be entertaining and multiple different ways to make people laugh. So it's a perfect, perfect marriage. It really is. I, I That's a bucket list item for me is to get to a Cyclones game on Seinfeld night. Keith, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, because I love talking about the Copa de la Diversion brands that mm-hmm. the different teams have out there and and uh, your, uh, the, your Copa brand, the Spanish language brand, this minor league baseball program that uh, seeks to expand its fan base by appealing to Spanish speaking communities. You all have been the jefes uh, in the Copa program. What's the significance of of jefes to the Spanish speaking communities in Brooklyn? And I know it's more than just one community, right? It's a you know it's a, it's a lot oh, yeah. of diversity in that area. And so, where does where does jefes come from, uh, and and how does it represent the Cyclones? Yeah, some teams uh, with Copa have kind of just, I guess, with the Spanish twist on their their name, and they just basically translate it. But we decided that jefes was um, more of who we were. The jefes translates directly to boss. So um, Brooklyn bosses, we're very, we're a very confident uh, borough of Brooklyn. Uh, we have a lot of different people, uh, a lot of different uh, <laughs> different ethnicities, and uh, just take our team for example. You know, we are. I, I'm not going to say it's perfect, but 50% American, 50% Latino, just in the clubhouse. Yeah. And uh, our manager this year, a guy by the name of Luis Rivera, who is a former Cyclone, uh, everybody calls him Jefe. And it's just, it's one of those words that is used a lot in that community. It's one of the words that we love. And so when when we switch over for our Copa games, we become the, the Brooklyn Jefes, uh, because quite honestly, Brooklyn thinks it's uh, better than everybody else. So we are the bosses. <laughs> Uh, that's perfect that's it's, it's a great it's a great copa brand and yeah you know, I, I love that program and so it's been fun to to follow that for sure 
Keith, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. I know everyone knows how to find the Brooklyn Cyclones uh, online and, and on social media. How can people find you? Uh, yeah, uh, Twitter at Keith Rad, K-E-I-T-H-R-A-A-D, and Instagram at Keith R. Rad. That's perfect. Thank you, Keith. I appreciate your time. I hope to get back to a Brooklyn Cyclones game sooner rather than later. Yeah, Paul. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks, Keith. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, sir. All right, everyone. Welcome back. This is a treat for me right here. I get the opportunity to speak with Andrew Stilwell, who is a writer for Coaster101.com and one of the hosts of the Coaster 101 podcast. We're going to talk about roller coasters. We're going to talk about amusement parks. We're going to talk about Coney Island and obviously the Cyclone, because that's the subject of this episode. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. Paul, thank you so much for reaching out. I'm I'm excited to be here. This is this is going to be fun. Can you tell me a little bit about why it is that you you know dedicate time and, and a podcast and a website to roller coasters? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Coaster 101, we cover news, reviews, interviews, in other words, that end in IEWS uh, about the theme park and amusement industry. And, you know, around the world, there's thousands of roller coasters. And, you know, especially in North America, there's hundreds of amusement parks. There's always something going on, um, whether it's new rides, new shows new food items, things like that. We try to cover it all at Coaster 101. Why I first got involved is growing up, I grew up in South Florida. So we were a couple couple hour drive to Disney. We would do the trip to Disney or Universal a couple times a year. Um, In 2000, I moved to North Carolina, which um, not necessarily known for its theme parks. And, you know, we've got Carowinds in the Charlotte area, kind of where I'm from. But other than that, it's a little bit of an amusement park desert, but I always had this interest and passion for roller coasters and thrill rides. And as as soon as I was able to ride like the big roller coasters, I moved to North Carolina. And so I was like, (laughs) I need to, I need to kind of keep this passion going. So I was consuming everything I could on the internet, all the guidebooks, all the everything, and just always had this passion for roller coasters and wanted to kind of grow up and design them. And that was like my lofty goal. Mm. You know, some kids want to be a baseball player or a doctor or whatever. I wanted to design roller coasters and then got to high school and realized I'm not very good at math and science (laughs) and the physics behind all this. I was like, well, I'm really good at roller coaster tycoon, but you put actual math and things behind it. I was like, I can't do it. In college, I was a creative writing minor and I found Coaster 101 because they had like a photo contest like back in 2013. And so I was like, well, I like winning contests. I have a picture of a roller coaster on my phone that uh, right now looks like it was taken on like a TI-83 calculator without phones have come. (laughs) But I kind of became familiar with Coaster 101 through this photo contest. And then they were looking for riders in the Carolinas where I am. And the rest is history. I've been writing for them since uh, October of 2013. So coming up on nine years. And uh, we've, again, started a podcast in the middle of the pandemic. I never thought I would say those words, but we got tired of baking bread and uh, finding sourdough starters. So the <laughs> next the next best pandemic thing was uh, come up with a podcast. And so it's a great excuse for me to travel to areas of the country that I've never been. I mean, I'm sure that's kind of like you with minor league baseball stadiums where, you know, you're traveling the country trying to find these, you know, 
new and unique minor league stadiums. I traveled the country trying to find roller coasters and theme parks and amusement parks that I've never personally been to. It seems to me like there's there's a lot of parallels between the amusement park industry and the minor league baseball industry, right? Like, like I'm sure you have a life list of of amusement parks that you've been to, roller coasters that you've ridden on. Uh, you know, everyone in in my world out there on the Twitter sphere and in the podcast world, you know, we're 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 all tracking the number of baseball parks we've been to. If there's a new one coming up, if there's you know, so what is it about the the amusement park industry and amusement parks in general that make them such a significant part of our culture that would make people like like you or you know me with baseball go seek them out and travel for them and and try to experience them sort of sequentially like that. Yeah, it's it is funny. I did as soon as you said that I was picking up on the parallels immediately. It's, you know, the the those who are deep into the roller coaster and theme park hobby, uh they have what we call a coaster count. So, nice. as many r- roller coasters as you've ridden, you know, you count it one time and then your count, you know, there are some people who are have counts in the thousands. They travel all around the world to, you know, very small remote areas and they will go ride a roller coaster that's primarily designed for children um, just to add it to their account. But I think, you know, like minor league baseball amusement parks, they, they provide a bit of an escape from the real world. And it's, you know, not necessarily, you know, you hear places like Disney and universal and these heavily themed environments and it's a really good escape from reality, but even at, you know, your local amusement park, you know, Paul, I know you're in, you're in Colorado. So a place like Elitch Gardens, for example, mm-hmm. in downtown Denver, it's a way to just escape the hustle and bustle of reality. And, you know, they got their start in North America in the United States and, you know, the late 1800s, uh, there was, there were trolley parks and they were designed as ways for people to kind of leave the city, leave their job and go kind of recreate for the weekend. And what originally became, you know, picnic pavilions, there was, you know, dance halls, things like that. Um, Around the turn of the 20th century, they started adding mechanical amusement rides, uh, carousels, Ferris wheels, roller coasters, things of that nature. And there's always something new coming. I mean, the next year alone, there's, you know, 50 roller coasters around Mm -hmm. North America that have been announced as being built for 2023 yeah so you know it's it's not like there's a new baseball stadium there's a you know not 50 new baseball stadiums around the uh, country but when there's a new one it automatically pops up on fans of the industry fans of amusement parks in general it pops up on their radar and says okay well there's a roller coaster opening in Atlanta next year. That's at this really small park called fun spot, America, Atlanta, but everyone is like, this is going to be a great ride. We need to find our way to Atlanta and ride it. So it's just, that is, it's part of the chase, I think. And, you know, for me, who's I'm somebody who's again, I've ridden a lot of roller coasters. There are people who have ridden a lot more than me. I'm inching towards 300 roller coasters that I can check off my list slowly, but surely I'm getting there. Wow. Um, but it's the escape from the nine to five world. The, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I've got a, a full-time job. I work in marketing and communications and yeah. the, you know, the, um, the nine to five life is great. You know, it's good that this has a paycheck, but the hobby in general allows me to travel to places I've never been, you know, like I went up to, uh, Erie, Pennsylvania a couple years ago, cause I was in Pittsburgh covering a, a media event for a new roller coaster. 
But because I'd never been to that area of the country, I landed at the airport in Pittsburgh and I get my rental car and I drive north to this park called Conneaut Lake Park, which uh, has since closed. And they had a historic, like almost hundred year old wooden roller coaster. And then you go, you know, another hour north to another little small park called Waldemere, uh, right there on the uh, shores of Lake Erie. And they've got one of the best wooden roller coasters in the world. But nobody knows about it unless you're in this hobby or you're local to Erie, Pennsylvania. So Andrew, I don't think I've ever suggested this during an interview here, but it's possible that you and I are the same person from parallel dimensions, because I'm starting to think that your life sounds an awful lot like mine in terms of when you started writing about this subject matter, when you started your podcast, the kind of work that you do. I'm in graphic design and communications myself that I have a nine to five job that, uh, you know, this is, this is not my full-time gig, obviously. And yeah, I plan work trips uh, around the fact that there are minor league baseball stadiums nearby. I just, I literally just planned a work trip for eight people, and I waited until the Arkansas Travelers released their schedule so that I could make sure that uh, you know our trip to Little Rock coincided with a minor league baseball game. So I, I think we may be living parallel lives here, just yeah. in different subject matters. Absolutely. So this episode is about the Brooklyn Cyclones, who are named for a very famous roller coaster. What is it about Coney Island that it makes it so special, makes it so iconic in the eyes of, of Americans? What, what is it that makes Coney Island special? I think Coney Island, you know, from a historical standpoint, you can go back to the late 1800s through about World War One, World War II. Coney Island was actually the nation's biggest like amusement tourist area. Um, when people say Coney Island, they think it's one amusement park, but actually, you know, in the 1800, late 1800s, early 1900s, it was made up of three major amusement parks, which were Luna Park, Dreamland, and Steeplechase Park. And it all kind of comes together on this, this one space, which it's all right there on the ocean. Um, and what people know now is Luna Park is kind of the, the main tourist destination, but given its proximity to New York and a city where there's so many skyscrapers and so much traffic and so many people, and it's the hustle and bustle, but, you know, 30, 40 minutes outside of the city, depending on where you are, there's just this little slice of Americana, I think. And the Coney Island Cyclone um, originally opened in 1927. Uh, so celebrating 95 years this year. And it's honestly, when you look at roller coasters in North America, Believe it or not, there's almost a thousand roller coasters in North America. The Coney Island Cyclone is the ninth oldest operating roller coaster in North America right now. Wow. So it's ha it's had staying power. And I mean, there's it's a lot of uh, roller coasters that are up in the Northeast. You know, you've got um, Leap the Dimps, which is at Lakemont Park, which uh, actually in the uh, outfield of the Altoona Curve, if we can get a little minor league baseball plug here. But, Absolutely. Yes. Um, so it's just it's had staying power and when i was reading those guidebooks as a kid and learning more about roller coasters every roller coaster book you ever buy it's got a picture of the coney island cyclone just because it is this iconic you know back in the day it it was a peak of like modern engineering yeah. and obviously now it's not going to break any records or anything like that but it's staying power is part of the reason i think it is such kind of an iconic uh, piece of you know New York history, Brooklyn history, um, but also Coney Island in general and the amusement and theme park space. Is it one of your 300? Have you been? Have you ridden the Cyclone? 
I honestly, I have not. I before this summer, I had never ridden a roller coaster in New York. It's it's sad. It's very sad. It's on the list. It's okay. one of those places I want to go. I'm going to try and go at some point next year, and I'm going to go. I'm going to yeah. ride it. Going to get it done. But <laughs> well, wear protective headgear. It's a it's a head rattler. <laughs> that's I've heard that, but it's also, yeah. you know. It's one of those things like I'm somebody who watches the Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest mm-hmm, every mm-hmm, year. Mm-hmm. You always see the shots of Coney Island in the background. And in 2021, they had it at the, the Cyclones Park because mm-hmm. of COVID. Yeah. And so you get to see not necessarily the Cyclone right there, but you have the the Thunderbolt, which is a more modern roller coaster that's right there kind of in yeah. left field. Yeah. And it's just such a really, really cool visual. And I really, really want to get there, but I haven't yet. I have to know here because you're talking about your lists. The I, you know, I keep sort of different versions of my list. You said you hadn't ridden a roller coaster in New York until last summer. I have I have a list of you know the total number of ballparks I've been to, which is exactly 100 right now. By the way, oddly, nice. Um, not counting spring training, it would be like 112 with spring training. But uh, 100 ballparks, 36 states where I've seen baseball games. I've got it broken down by major league, you know, current major leagues expired or, or, or defunct major leagues. What are the what are the lists that you keep of of roller coasters? The the list I keep, I keep obviously my total count. So mm-hmm. I'm at 270, 269, 270, something like that right now. Yeah. I'd have to, I've got it. It's on a website. There's a website. <laughs> this is not sponsored content. There's a website called coastercount.com oh. that's really user and te- user friendly. You just go, you click. If you've written it, it adds it to your account. It's great. Nice. And if you that's... can like think back to amusement parks you visited as a kid, you can catalog it by date. You can catalog it by then. But I keep basically a best of my favorite steel coasters and my favorite wooden coasters i go to you know a top 10 but then the overall list of just what i've ridden coastercount.com sounds like in in my world here there's a website called baseball bucket list and so that's it's the similar thing you get on there and you track everything that you've done and you can even create your own list of oh i want to do this and this and this and this we recently got to two baseball games at different ballparks in one day we had a group of folks go have you ever gone to two amusement parks in one day Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and I, I mentioned that that Pennsylvania trip. Um, I did that recently on a work trip. Uh, yep. I had nice. I had some time. We were in the uh, Bay Area of Texas. Okay. Uh, so I landed in Houston, got my rental car, drove down to Galveston to the uh, Galveston Pleasure Pier. Yeah. We rode one roller coaster, which is all they have, and then drove up to uh, Kima, Texas. Kima, yeah. Kima. I don't yeah. know how it's pronounced. K E M A H. Uh, they also have one roller coaster there. Yeah. And so I got, you know, managed to get them both. But there's there's been days where I have done multiple amusement parks in a day um, just to ride one roller coaster and leave. It's um, not something I'm particularly proud of sometimes, but yeah. it, it gets the job done. And I'm not ever in that area of the country. And yeah. I don't know when I'll ever be back. So the catch is, you know, when I've got the time, uh, you, you try to see what's in the area and there's another good website that's kind of a it's called roller coaster database okay. so you can plug in where you are and you can know okay there is a roller coaster primarily designed for kids that's going to be like 45 minutes away from me yeah and it's at this steakhouse slash miniature golf course in eastern north carolina and so 
if I'm by myself, it's no, no problem, but it's one of those, if I've got, you know, my younger brother with me, for example, I had to convince him one time to go ride this roller coaster called Dinosaur Canyon, which is eight feet tall. It's run by a guy who does not have a full set of teeth, but it's at this, again, it's called Deadwood. It's in the yeah. middle of nowhere in yeah. Eastern North Carolina, yeah. but not even an amusement park. It's just, it's a roller coaster. It's there. Yeah, We wrote it. He still hasn't forgiven me. It's been years at this point, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, it's all part of the chase. That's just the way it is. That is it's, it's, I, I'm just amazed by like how many parallels there are in this world to the, the, the minor league baseball world that the lengths people will go to, to get to a, uh, a baseball park, you know, to, mm-hmm. I, I had a work trip once where I flew into St. Louis, drove four hours to Memphis to see one game and then drove three hours back to where my, you know, my work event was. And I flew in, you know, I got up and, and took a 6 a.m. flight so that I could make all this happen. But I mean, it's just like, I mean, just like you say, it's just like the links we'll go to 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 follow our passions here. And this yes. is this is this is a great passion, right? Like, absolutely. I mean, I remember because I obviously don't have you know, I don't I don't share your same level of passion for roller coasters, but everybody, you know, has roller coasters as part of their lives and, and amusement parks. I go to the Jersey shore every year with my family. We go to the ocean city boardwalk, right? Uh-huh. Like, and there's, there's a couple of, you know, there's two, three roller coasters right there on the ocean city boardwalk. I remember, you know, I grew up at, outside of Philadelphia. I, you know, my very first roller coaster was the comet at Hershey park. Yep. And then I remember waiting to be old enough to ride the super duper looper at Hershey park. Uh-huh. Right. Yep. <laughs> so mm-hmm. those were, you know, it just sticks out in my memory. I, my, my family took a vacation when I was younger to colonial Williamsburg. Yep, and obviously Bush Gardens is right there, and yes. and I spent just literally. I mean, this was way before the internet, right? Like I I got brochures from Bush Gardens. I spent like so much time like studying the Loch Ness monster to see, you know, what that. And I was telling my parents, I'm like, there's a 70 foot drop that you do in a second and a half. I mean, I was giving them all these stats, and so you can imagine my horror when we got to Colonial Williamsburg, and it's like the guys in the tri-corner caps making candles, right? I'm like, no, we have to go to Bush Gardens now. <laughs> so anyway, it's uh, I love these parallels. Andrew, I have kept you way longer than than I said I was going to uh, because I just, I, I'm I'm so fascinated by this this passion that you have. And again, the parallels between the, the, the amusement park world and the minor league baseball world and, and the places where they coincide. You know, there are a number of places uh, that have, maybe not roller coasters necessarily, but a lot of places that have Ferris wheels out there in the outfield. And there's definitely some, you know, there's amusements out there that, that uh, correlate, you know, that these, these worlds do overlap and there's a lot of similar reasons people do these things. And so I'm just, I, I love that we got to have this conversation because it, it's such a fascinating world and, and, and so much, so much fun. So thank you again for, for joining me. Can you tell us where, where folks can find coaster 101 online? Yeah, we are, we're at coaster 101.com. Uh, we are on all forms of social media at Coaster101, so that's C-O-A-S-T-E-R-101. Um, and then, yeah, if you enjoyed the sound of my voice on this podcast and want to go on another niche topic, uh, you can check us out, the Coaster101 podcast, anywhere you uh, consume your podcasts. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. This has been great. And uh, hey, listen, if you get to Colorado, let me know. We'll go to Elitch Gardens together and uh, ride some roller coasters. I love it. Thanks, Paul. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Take care.